You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it into your house and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey and you shall do so with his garment. With any lost thing of your brother's, which he has lost and you found, you shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. And chapters like this, it's, it's almost comical and sad at the same time why God needs to write down these laws in the first place. God knows how foolish and how messed up and how selfish mankind is that he has to write down rules like, hey, if you see a brother with a flat tire, don't hide yourself and run in the opposite direction. That's what he's telling us here. But because God knows our heart, he has to write things down like this. I'm sure many of you parents have found yourself saying sentences you thought you would never have to say. Any parents like that here? Like, hey, don't smear your poop on the shower curtain. I never thought we'd have to say sentences like that. But there's certain things you find out. I never thought I'd have to say this. But here we go. We have to say this, right? Stop eating rocks. Never thought I'd have to tell my children this. But you learn different things. So here God is saying, don't hide yourself in order to find an excuse to not act upon your brother and your sister's need. If you see a brother and a sister in need, help them. Strengthen them. Help them in their cause, whether it's finding something that's lost. We also find in the Bible there's no room for finders, keepers, losers, weepers. There's no room for it. If you find something and you know it belongs to someone else, if they're around, we're to give it to them. If they're not around, we're to bring it into our home, take care of it, and then at the opportune time, bring it to them. James chapter 4, verse 17, it tells us, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Or just like Chad so aptly said, right? It's just the right thing to do. We should do the right thing. Jesus would later on mention how all of the law could be fulfilled with two commandments. And we see how these four verses fit perfectly into one of those two commandments found in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In Luke chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus says, Just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. If you're cow is running away and you would want someone to find your cow and bring it safely, that's what you should do when you find somebody else's cow running away. In James chapter 2 verse 8 through 9 it says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. And now here's our part where I believe many of us struggle. But if you show partiality, 
you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. See, sometimes our flesh can rationalize if someone we like is going through difficulty, ay, pobrecito, let me help them. But if it's someone we don't like and we can't stand, somehow we rationalize, God's just punishing them. Let me move out of the way. They're just getting what they deserve. And we, rash, we show partiality. When we can help them, we stop simply because we don't like them. I love what Raymond Brown has to say. He says, the covenant community must consist of good neighbors. God is generous and loving. Nobody who believes in him is allowed to live selfishly and carelessly within society. Every believer has a responsibility towards his neighbor. Do we live selfishly? Do we live carelessly? Hopefully no one a part of our church was the one that took all the toilet paper during COVID. You leave some on the store shelves, right? Or are we just living selfishly? It's all about me. It's all about my family. We need to remember that we are called to be different than the world around us. And that's why Jesus aptly calls us the salt and the light of this world. We are meant to be a preserving influence and factor in the world around us. We are to let our light so shine before men that they would see our good works, helping out our neighbors, being a good neighbor, helping others, and glorify your Father in heaven. And as I mentioned earlier, John 13, verse 35, by this all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you have love for one another? Do your neighbors say, that person, they love me. They, they consider me. They are a good neighbor. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. This one sort of stands alone here in this chapter. It says, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now this verse, a few decades ago, you wouldn't bat an eye, everybody would agree. But in a day like today, many try to take the scripture and try to give a myriad of reasons why it no longer constitutes as truth or why we should pull it out of context or pull it out of scripture altogether. We know that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Scripture also tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And our God has created men and women with specific distinctions and specific roles. God's created man with the ability to inject seed into the woman, and God has created women with the ability to receive that seed and pair it up with the eggs inside of her. God created then women with the ability to conceive and bear children. Man is not capable of such things. And it doesn't just stop here, but then God creates the women with an ability to feed the baby through her breasts. And then she also has what we call motherly instincts. We call it that. We've called it that for decades, for centuries. A motherly instinct in order to care for and love the children. 
There's a certain term when moms sort of pull out the claws. That mama bear comes out. You don't say that about a man when his claws come out. Oh, your mama bear is coming out, bro. You never say anything like that. Because God has created men with certain distinctions. And God has created women with certain distinctions. In Genesis 2.15, it tells us that Adam's role was to tend and to keep the garden. Men, we are meant to guard and protect what God has entrusted to our care. We are also meant to labor and to work. That's why we are the ones, when there's a weird noise outside, we are the ones that are to go outside and investigate, not our wives or our kids. Hey, honey, can you check out what's going on out there, right? No man should be doing that. It's also the role of the man to labor and to go out and work. People fight against it. People really didn't fight against it before this new age where you can make a lot of money just sitting at a desk. But it's God's intention. It's God's roles. In Genesis 2.18, it tells us that Eve was created in order to accompany Adam and to be a helper to him. And women, that's why God has created you, to accompany a man and to help him to create a family, to love and cultivate a godly home. Men are not superior to women, and women are not superior to men. God has made both of them in his image and in his likeness with specific roles and specific distinctions to play and live out. And it's in the beautiful home and the beautiful place of marriage where we get to see a full picture of God and Christ's love for the church when a man is functioning and living and owning his role and when that woman, that wife is functioning and owning her role. Here God is commanding Israel to not play around with those distinctions. And notice he doesn't give specific garments or a specific type of dress. He says, a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man. There's not specific garments written here. There's certain churches that don't know how they want to twist scripture. So they say jeans aren't allowed for women, but then makeup isn't allowed for women too. So they just twist scripture however they desire. The question is, why are you wearing what you're wearing? And ask yourself if it's something that pertains to to the other sex. And now this changes depending on the culture that you're in. If you go outside and you find a Scottish man wearing a kilt and you tell him he's wearing a dress, he may have more than just words to give to you. <laughs> and even in the context of God telling Israel here, the man and the woman were both wearing long robes. They're both wearing long robes. In Rome, both the man and the woman would be wearing togas. Hence the need for girding your loins that we see even soldiers and men are told to gird their loins. However, Israel knew and we know today that there are certain articles of clothing that pertain to men and certain articles of clothing that pertain to women within our culture. And if you're wearing something in order to hide your sex and gender, know that scripturally, here is where you are sinning against the Lord and against scripture. Are you trying, are you actively putting in effort to blur the lines between the sexes? God calls this 
an abomination and an affront to him because he is not the author of confusion. If you're born a male, he made you a male. If you're born female, he made you a female. And we all have different difficulties. We all have different sins. We all have different struggles in which the only way to overcome those sins and struggles is by living a life of faith and a life of obedience. And the sins and the condemnation for the gender dysphoria we have today is no different. It's living a life of faith and living a life of obedience that will help you overcome the temptation of the enemy. One commentator, Grant, he says the following. From the beginning, it's been the purpose of the adversary to destroy the male and female relationship that God has created. Attempting to change this divinely instituted order disrupts society and causes suffering and disease and is a sign of open rebellion against the design of the Creator. The stats don't lie, the numbers don't lie, that those that give into homosexual appetites or gender dysphoria, they have much more mental issues and a much more likelihood of hurting themselves and committing suicide. Right away, our culture and our world will say it's because of the hatred of other, of other people and the lack of acceptance of other people, but it is not the case. When we go against God and we go against his word, when we go against the design of the creator, it will lead to pain and suffering and death. David Guzik, he says, this is not a command against a woman wearing a garment that in some ways might be common between men and women. It's a command against dressing in a manner which deliberately blurs the lines between sexes. The dramatic rise in cross-dressing, Transviticism and androgynous and gender bender behavior in our culture is a shocking trampling of this command. And it will reap a bitter harvest and more perversion and more gender confusion in our culture. Those who fail to observe it are called an abomination to the Lord. This was not only because of cross-dressing was a feature of pagan and idolatrous worship in the ancient world, but also because of the terrible cultural price that is paid when it is pretended that there's no difference between men and women. We've seen this in our world. We've seen this in our last 10 years. In the last 20 years of our nation, we've seen the drastic difference that the more we accept these lies and these sins, the more our culture is eroded and the more our nation is falling apart. We can be reminded in Deuteronomy 18, God told the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 18 verse 12, two, a couple pages to the left in your Bible, depending how big or small the print is in your Bible, but a couple pages it says, for all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess listened to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. And that's the question we must all ask ourselves as believers. Are we just going to act like the world and the pagan world around us? Or will we stand and say, but as for you, 
But as for you, but as for me, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And if you think it's some that God is angry just at the LGBT, the LGBTQ plus community, know that in a moment God's going to wreak havoc on any type of sexual immorality, adultery, sex before marriage. All of it is wrong in the eyes of God. All of it. God doesn't hold back any punches. Sex is meant for one male and one female that are married and under their marriage. That's it. Now we go to birds and birds' nests and moms and baby birds and eggs. I don't know why, but that's what happens. God bless you. Verse 6 and 7. If a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. So you're not allowed to eat fried chicken with scrambled eggs at the same time. Animals are created to be in submission to mankind. But that does not mean that mankind should be cruel to animals. There's no need for greed and we need to see God's desire for us to feed our own families and yet be kind to animals. Proverbs chapter 12 verse 10 says, A righteous man regards the life of his animal. But the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. So there's no doubt that even within the garden, God gave to Adam power over all the animals. However, even in the days of Noah, God told Noah, you can eat of every single animal. That's right there in the same Old Testament book of Genesis. And now this small command, and many say it's the smallest commandment within all of the Pentateuch, Notice the promise that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. And here we see that obedience, even to the smallest of God's commands, will bring blessing to us and will bring blessing to our children. The temptation of greed tells us and our flesh tells us to take it all. Take every egg, every chicken, take every baby bird, every mother, just to try to get a little bit ahead. However, God says the very opposite. Take only what's needed and conserve the rest, that it may be well for you and that you may prolong your days. It goes against our flesh, but we see it even within our world. The different areas within Florida that are conservation areas, how Animals flourish there. Private land, how animals flourish there. And yet the government run land, they're just free land, how you barely see any animals there. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 4 says, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. It's not by greed. It's not by cutting everyone down to get there. It is by humility and the fear of the Lord. This is where riches, honor, and life are found. Verse 8, we see God's building code here in the nation of Israel. Verse 8, he says, When you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your house if anyone falls from it. 
How many of you know what a parapet is? Right, a few people know what a parapet is. All a parapet is, is a guardrail all around your roof. That's all God is saying here. We see God's building code. Most ancient housetops were flat roofs that were used during the summer for a cool breeze that would have a tent shade over the top. So here God, a very practical God, is requir requiring Israel to put a railing all around their rooftops so that they wouldn't be liable if someone fell off the rooftop. We can think of other scriptures in Proverbs that talk about living on the corner of the housetop or the rooftop. This would be an area where you would use, especially during the summer, for a breeze and a shade. Verse 9 through 11, you shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you've sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. Again, these are some of the most confusing or head-scratching scriptures in the Bible. But many scholars believe these rules were meant to show that Israel was completely different than all the pagan neighbors and the pagan countries around them. Because pagan cultures had many superstitions and believed if you'd mix certain seeds together or if you'd mix certain animals together or if you'd mix certain fabrics together, you would create some type of special and magical combination for your fields or your outfit or for your plowing and reaping. And we know that God desired for Israel to be different. For us today, God's called us to be different first and foremost, within our heart. And if our heart is different, if we've been given that new heart, then from the overflow of our heart, we will act differently than the world around us. If you're just trying to act differently in your own strength, you will get exhausted, you will fail, and you will blow up sooner rather than later. But if you've had that change from the inside out and you're abiding in the Lord, you can and will be different than the world around you. We can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and we can see our New Testament version of these same four verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 through 18. And it tells us here, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 
And just as the Lord wanted Israel to look different and be different and live differently, whether it came to their dress or the way they planted seeds or the way they plowed in their fields, God has called us to live differently as well. How God tells us that whatever we do, do all in the name of the Lord. Everything we do, our work ethic is a form of worship to the Lord our God. We can think of the New Testament, how Jesus is the one who plants the field of wheat and it is the enemy who comes and throws the tares in at night. And here we see the command to not have oxen and donkeys plowing together in the field. And oxen and donkeys have different strides, they have a different height, and this would make it extremely uncomfortable for these animals to wear a yoke and plow a field. I thought this was very interesting, something I thought I'd never read in a commentary, but Robert Jameson, he says, the donkeys, from feeding on coarse and poisonous weeds, has a fetid breath. That word fetid is just a nice way to say has stank breath. It has a strong, unpleasant smell of breath, which its yoke fellows seek to avoid. Wives, now you, you got someone that you can relate with, right? Not only as poisonous and offensive, but it would produce leanness or, if long, death. And hence it has been observed always to hold its head away from the donkey and to then only pull with one shoulder. Zach, why are you reading this weird part of the commentary? What is the point of this? You see, oxen and donkeys have a different diet. And what's poisonous to the ox is not poisonous to the donkey. And thus their diets affect what comes out of their mouths. What comes out of the mouth of the donkey will affect that ox in multiple ways. Believers, what's the diet of the people around you? And as a result of their diet, spiritually and morally, what is coming out of their mouths? Because whether you like it or not, if there are some fetid words coming out, it will affect you. And now you have to step back and ask yourself, should you be yoked together with them? We have to ask ourselves. I remember this as a young believer. There was just one friend in the world that I still had. But every time I would hang out with him, these old four-letter words that I stopped saying, all of a sudden would all be back in my mind and out of my mouth. Because I was yoking myself together with someone that wouldn't feed as I would feed and had a poisonous mouth and had a stank breath and it would affect my soul. We have to ask ourselves, who are the people we are yoking together in life? Connecting ourselves to because their speech and their diet, their spiritual diet and their moral diet will have an effect on you. The movies you watch, the music you listen to will have an effect on you. We can think of Jesus' words in Matthew 11 verse 28. Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew Poole mentions how there is a spiritual application in this principle of not mixing seed or clothing or animals. 
God is simply forbidding unholy combinations. Though in themselves seem small and trivial, are given to forbid all mixture of their inventions with God's institutions in doctrine or in worship. Right away, I thought of those bumper stickers. Coexist, right? And we have people today, there's a danger, even within our own hearts, to find our own perfect blend of spirituality. Our own perfect blend of spirituality that's just comfortable enough for us. We get a little bit from here, and a little bit from there, and a little bit from here and there, and then we feel comfortable enough. Family, may we stay holy, may we stay pure, may we be feeding upon Jesus Christ and His Word. Don't be mixing, don't be inventing your own form of Christianity. Hold fast to the Word. In verse 12, we see also this was a part of their fashion statement. They were to make tassels on the four corners of their clothing, which with they cover themselves. This was to remind themselves of God's commandments and to be obedient to them. You can read that in Numbers chapter 15, verse 39 and 40. These tassels were a reminder to them of God's word and a reminder not just to know God's word, but a reminder to do and obey God's word. It's so interesting when man tries to work their way up to God, they can make everything a way to flex their own pride. And the Pharisees used this commandment of four tassels to flex their pride. Jesus calls them out in Matthew 23, verse 5. He says, they do all their works to be seen by men. They like to make their phylacteries broad, and they like to enlarge the borders of their garments. The Pharisees' four tassels, they had like four ropes, right, on the side of their garments from a cruise liner because they wanted people to see how holy they are. Right? There's some people that have big Bibles because their eyesight isn't very good. And there's some people that have big Bibles because they're trying to impress people around them. No difference here. Now we come to the laws of sexual morality. What a Valentine's Day section for us to be in today. But very applicable in the world that we live in. Before we read through this, what we're going to see is how sexual purity is to be highly valued in God's society. Just as love for our neighbor is to be valued, sexual purity is to be valued in God's society. We are called to be his holy people, his holy sons and his holy daughters. And if we are his sons and daughters, then we need to see sexual immorality, not as our world sees or the pagans around the sea, but we need to see sexual morality as God sees it. And if we're holding to sexual morality as God sees it, then we need to place a high value on sexual purity, not just for the daughters, but also for the sons here. Because it's found all over Scripture. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, it's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. Then Jesus tells us if we're just going with our eyes and our mind and our heart, we can commit adultery and sexual immorality. We can turn quickly to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 
And here we see Paul's letter to a church that is filled with believers and there's nothing new under the sun. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Finally, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and how you ought to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. And how many of you have ever asked God, what is your will for my life? Has anybody ever asked that question? I've asked that question several times. Have any of you ever asked, Lord, how do you want me to walk? How should I walk and live so I can please you? If you've ever asked yourself this question, God puts it plainly here in Scripture for us. Verse 3, what's God's will? How can we please Him? How should we walk? In your sanctification. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man. He doesn't reject Paul. But he rejects God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Sexual purity is high up there in God's list of priorities. And we need to value this. We need to be so cutthroat with our own sexual sin, with our thought life, with our electronic life, with our phones, our computers. We need to kill this and put it to death. We're going to see here in ancient customs what did this look like. Verse 13 through 17. Back in Deuteronomy 22. It says, If any man takes a wife and goes into her, and detests her, and charges her with shameful conduct, and brings a bad name on her, and says, I took this woman, and when I came to her, I found she was not a virgin. Then the father and mother of that young woman shall take and bring out the, the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as wife. And he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin. And yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. David Guzik, he states, he says, According to custom, a Jewish woman would first be intimate with her husband upon a special cloth or special sheets, which would collect the small drops of blood, which were then accepted as evidence of the young woman's virginity. This blood-stained cloth or sheets would then become the property of the married woman's parents, 
who would keep it as the evidence of the young woman's virginity. And this custom is still practiced in some Eastern cultures even today. How can we apply this today? Number one, parents know that you have an amount of responsibility for your young daughters. You are responsible for her purity. All the parents here, we're responsible for our daughters. There are Christian men that say, oh, that's on my wife. That's, that's above my pay grade. No, man, that's on you. It's on the husband and on the wife, on the father and the mother to keep and hold the purity of that young girl. And we see that parents of, it says specifically, young women are still somewhat in charge of protecting and guarding this young woman even in marriage. So if the parents of the young woman were able to prove her innocence to this new husband's claim, verse 18 and 19 tell us that the elders of the city shall take that man and punish him. And they shall find him 100 shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name on the virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. In verse 18, we see that the elders of the city take this man, they take him out, and they punish him. Some commentators say that this man would be whipped 39 times. He would then pay a hefty fine to the father, which would be double the usual price for a bride. And then he would waive his ability to divorce her. Many of us read this portion of Scripture and we say, man, que pena, what in the world is going on here? This huge mess. Know that we don't see any historical record of this actually taking place. So perhaps God's instituted all these rules and this heavy punishment as a deterrent to these types of situations. Of some man thinking he can get this good big idea that if he doesn't like the sex, he can divorce the girl and get away from her. However, in verse 20 and 21, but if the thing is true and evidences of virginity are not found for the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel, to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Now normally, Stoning and this type of execution would take place outside the city. But once again, God's view of sexual holiness is so great that this execution would take place right on the front entryway of the parents' home for all of the neighbors to see. Again, something so very and strong to think about for the young women within the city when they consider the prize and the price of their virginity, and of their sexual purity. And oftentimes, a girl being able to come to marriage with her virginity, it all is linked to her value of herself and of her sexual purity. And parents, dads, you have a big role to play in that. How much she values herself, how little she values herself. And each girl is going to have a different baseline, but the dad can aid and help that, 
and that that can greatly destroy and erode that. We see that there's great consequences to sexual sin. If this girl had played the harlot while she was living in her father's house, there was a great price to pay. This would also be a shame for the father and the mother for the rest of their life. So it's also a deterrent for the mom and dad to make sure they're doing their best to make sure their daughter is pure as long as she's in her care. For the parents here, how much do we care of our daughter's purity? How much do we care of our son's purity? Again, you, you got to be living under a rock if you think just giving them a phone without any type of protection or any type of checking in, of knowing the passcodes, of knowing what they're watching, and you're thinking, of course, they're only looking at Bluey and Disney Plus, and that's all they're watching on there. We live in a wicked, wicked world and society where men and women have to literally flee sexual lusts on their phone. They are actively seeking out whom they can devour. And today, even though the consequences for sexual sin don't look like this, there are still great consequences for our sexual sin for both the men and the ladies here. The wages of sin is still death, and there will be an ongoing separation process for the rest of your life. Because that's what sex was created for. Sex, like males and females, were created and designed by God to not only procreate, to not just have a good time in marriage, but to create a special bonding, a special fellowship, and a special joining within marriage. We can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. All the husbands, don't get any ideas. Don't start elbowing your wives or anything like that for Valentine's Day. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. What is the point of sexual intimacy? It tells us here. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee, run away from sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does, it's outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. I believe even in science today, it's shown that whoever you're having sex with, you have a bit of their DNA with you for the rest of your life. And when we have sex outside of marriage, even virtual sex, you're joining your body, your emotions, your memories, your mind, and your senses to different people. And the, the craziness of the technology that we have today is you have people bonding their emotions, their memories, their minds, their senses to thousands of different people in their lifetime. If you commit this sex outside of marriage, you will then have to battle with all of these emotions and all of these memories that your mind and your senses will bring to you for the rest of your life. It's a battle. So why would you want to add ammunition to the enemy's arsenal? 
That's why it's so important to be holy as he's holy. To see sex not something that the world has created, but something that God has created for one husband and one wife in their marriage. And there's no doubt that in Christ we are a new creation. But we must know that there's still consequences for not doing things God's way. The man after God's own heart, David. The man who asked and repented and God granted him his repentance and still called him a man after his own heart. Still had grave consequences for his sexual sin. There, there's a statement that always rocks me to my core and scares me. And I hope, keep praying, keep praying for me. Again, stay away from anything like this. There is a stain that stays. And sexual intimacy outside of marriage is a stain that stays with you the rest of your life. We're new creations in Christ, but there are consequences for this. Verse 22, back in Deuteronomy 22 it says, if a man is found lying with a woman married to her husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lays with the woman and the woman. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. Now we know that no one was able to be put to death unless there was two or three witnesses. So someone crying out loud that someone else has committed adultery, this is one reason why just both parties would be put to death in order to protect this he say, she say type of situation. We can also be reminded in the New Testament how the woman caught in adultery, just how evil and wicked the Pharisees were to throw this woman at the feet of Jesus. And yet where was the man? Where was the man involved? The Pharisees had a double standard in which they were trying to trap Jesus. But God, and we know Jesus Christ, has no double standard. He hates partiality. In adultery, both have sinned, so both will pay the penalty of death. And why is this? So you shall put away the evil from Israel. Once again, these heavy consequences, though rarely executed, would be a huge deterrent for sexual promiscuity. Sadly today, sexual promiscuity is what's out and on display. It's what sells, it's what's popular, it's what's on the sideline of every single major sporting event. It's what's on the TV shows, it's how parents are dressing their sons and daughters today. We truly are living in the days of Noah and in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. But may we say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 23 and 24. If a young woman who's a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall put away the evil from among you. We see here a distinction between this sin committed in a city and this sin committed out in a rural territory. Even today in big cities, in New York City and in other metropolises, you hear the noises of your neighbors, good, bad, and ugly. And within a city like this, you'd have tents, You'd have houses made out of mud and stone. You don't even have storm windows or shutters or noise dampening, anything. 
So you'd hear whatever was going on with your neighbors. So if a woman claims to be raped, but there is no struggle, they were to be treated as aiding and abetting in this committing of adultery. And now both of them would be put to death. Why? So that they would put away the evil from among them. Verse 25 through 27. But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lays with her shall die. But if you shall do nothing to the young woman, there is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. For he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. We see here the Lord, he doesn't blame the girl for the sin that's committed against her. And perhaps you're here and someone took advantage of you as a kid or as an adult, as a teenager. Know that it's not your fault. The Lord sees it as the offender's fault and it is the offender's blame and they have to pay the consequences for it. The woman is not to blame for this rape. Verse 28 and 29. If a man finds a young woman who's a virgin, who is not betrothed and he seizes her and lies with her, and they're found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he's humbled her, and he shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. Again, a huge deterrent to sexual promiscuity. If a man laid with any woman who wasn't married and was a virgin, he would have to marry her, would have to pay the price of marriage, and then he would lose any right to divorce her for all the days of his life. Finally, verse 30, A man shall not take his father's wife, nor uncover his father's bed. Here the Lord, he has holiness even for stepmoms and stepdads and things like this. Sadly, this is exactly what happened in the church of Corinth. We can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Paul calls out the church of Corinth and he tells them, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. And sadly, within churches today, there is a whole lot of sexual sin happening. A lot of sexual promiscuity, a lot of movies that are watched, a lot of pornography, a lot of sex outside of marriage, a lot of deviant behavior within the church. It will get cleaned out. The Lord... He sorts it out. None of it is going to stay hidden. So may we be reminded of 2 Corinthians 6.17 to come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what's unclean and I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. If you've been fighting, hey, keep the good fight up. Keep the good fight up. Don't let anybody lie to you or tell you different. Don't let the loneliness of Valentine's Day be a temptation to you. Continue to fight the good fight. 
And if you've lived a life and lived a past where you've been bombarded by sexual sin, or sexual sin has defeated you for a large period of time, and it's a great part of your past, you should be reminded of Jesus' interaction with the woman caught in adultery. In John chapter 8, verse 10 through 12, worship team, you guys can come up, but in John chapter 8, Jesus had raised himself and he saw no one but the woman. Jesus, he fended off all of the Pharisees. He fended off all the accusers, all the people that were trying to twist the word of God. He defends this woman. He defends this sinner. And he says to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Hey, if you've struggled with sexual sin in the past, let it die right here, right now. I struggled with that in the past, part of my past, part of my history. Put to death, it's done, finito. We keep wrestling, we keep fighting, but that part is dead to me. You can come to Christ and he says, hey, I don't condemn you. However, go and sin no more. For your past, you've come, you've asked for forgiveness. I don't condemn you for what's happened in the past. But from here on out, go and sin no more. If we say that we're following Jesus, if we're saying we're Christians, we're a little Christ following him and living with him and abiding in him, then we are to not walk in darkness, but we have the light of life. So hey, let's all stand. We'll close in prayer. We can all stand and close in prayer. And just remember to stay pure. Stay holy. You won't regret it. You'll have a ton of regrets if you go the other way. If you're obedient to the world and the sexual promiscuity and not a big deal to watch this or watch this or go out with this girl, go out with this guy, you'll have a ton of regret. But if you stay biblical, you won't have any regrets. So, Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that we love, Lord, only because you first loved us, Lord. Lord, I just pray that tonight, Lord, each of us would sense, Lord, just greater depths of your love towards us, God. Lord, help us to, to really understand what true love looks like, Lord. The, the sacrificial aspect of it, Lord. The putting ourselves to death, Lord. The being a servant to, to others, God.